You're listening to an audio sermon from Hope Bible Church in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at hopeoakville.ca. Well, great to be with you this morning. Great to have 25% inside, many more outside, many more online. Shout out to those who are outside experiencing the heat of the day, and uh, we're just grateful that everybody's here together. Uh, If there's one thing that's on our minds these days, it's the whole idea of return, right? We're returning, we're we're returning, where there's this like hope that's in the air that somehow we are returning back to what we used to have. After 16 months of living under the cloud of COVID-19, the one thing that everybody's thinking about is returning, right? Do I hear an amen? Is anybody out there? We're all thinking about that. We're all thinking about the road back. We're looking forward to and excited about um, return to routine. I know many of you, I've talked to many of you, you're saying, I just wish I could have my routine back. Well, many of us are excited about that. We're excited about the possibility of a routine, relate, returning to relationships, being able to be with our family full out and all of our friends, uh, return back to church, right? Having everybody here together, returning to recreation, returning to increased freedom, just to return back to something that seems a little more normal, right? Everybody's thinking about it. Everybody's talking about it. But here's this. What if we got it all back? What if we got it all back, and in the process, we actually missed what God wants us to return to? We're going to be studying through the book of 2 Chronicles, and as we uh, go through that, I just want you to understand that the book of 2 Chronicles, was 1st and 2 Chronicles, were actually written to a group of people who were actually returning. They were returning. It's, um, they were coming out of exile. They were returning from Babylon to Jerusalem. And uh, the book of First and Second Chronicles are actually two of the last books in the Old Testament time period. They're uh, not, sta- not put that way in our English Bibles, but actually in the actual reality of it, they, they are one of the two of the last books that were written in the Old Testament. And for us to understand that, we need to kind of get a little bit of a backdrop before we get into the dive into the series. So if we look at this, this little chart here, this gives us a little bit of a background that we can understand a little bit about the history of Israel and Judah at this time period. In 586 BC, okay, before Christ, 586, Babylon was the superpower in the Middle East, and they conquered Jerusalem. Actually, they started they're conquering about 20 years before that in 606 or 605 BC, and uh, when and King Nebuchadnezzar was their king. He was, uh, uh, you know, into conquering people like many superpowers are into, and he started his siege on Jerusalem in 606 BC, and he took people like Daniel into captivity, and yet over a 20-year period, finally 20 years later in 586 BC. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon conquers Jerusalem, tears down its walls, destroys its temple, and all of the people, most of the people, are taken into captivity back into Babylon. Under God's sovereignty, however, Babylon doesn't remain as the superpower, and in 539 B.C., another superpower, God's in control of all of this, that God raises up Persia, the Medo-Persians, and they raise up, and under Cyrus, 
Persia conquers Babylon, and Cyrus, wanting to come across as a better king than Nebuchadnezzar, he decides to, if the Jews want to, leave Babylon to just let them go. In fact, if you go to the end of 2 Chronicles and you look in chapter, in chapter 36, you will notice that in chapter 36, verses 22 and 23, he actually announces the return uh, to Jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple. And so in 536 B.C., three years after this, after the conquering, there's an initial return to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel and Jeshua are the leaders of that time. They take some of the people out of Babylon. They return back to Jerusalem because they want to... They want to go back. They want to restore their lives. They want to return. And so they're returning to rebuild their lives and to rebuild their temple. And in six years, in, in, uh, in 530 B.C., after much opposition and perseverance through much opposition, they actually reconstruct the temple, and they finish the temple in 530 B.C. Now you'd think, if they made all the way, their way all the way back, and they had restored their temple, you'd think that a revival would have broken out in Jerusalem. But there was no revival that broke out in Jerusalem. In fact, for the next 60 years, all there was was apathy and disobedience. They've left exile. They've come back to Jerusalem. They've spent all this time building the temple, and then it just goes into a spiritual malaise, an apathy, a disobedience for God. And it's not until Ezra comes back in 470 B.C., another return back to Jerusalem with some other people, that Ezra the priest focuses in on the Word of God and the worship of God in the heart of God's people, that the people begin to get stirred up. And then, of course, 10 years later, Nebuchadnezzar comes, sorry, not Nebuchadnezzar, Nehemiah comes back to Jerusalem, and he restores the city, the city walls. And you say, well, why are you telling all this? Because Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, were written during the time period when these people were returning back to Jerusalem. You say, well, I don't know. Like, First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings, they kind of look all the same to me. Well, there is a lot of similarity, but there is some significant difference. In fact, if you look at First and Second Kings, you need to realize that First and Second Kings, even though they're talking about the kings there, it is written to a people who have just gone into exile. Yeah, the people have just gone into exile. They're trying to answer the question, how did we get here? Or why are we in exile? And so the writer who's writing First and Second Kings is recording for us in great record the sins, all the sins of the kings and the people over and over again in First and Second Kings to try to answer the question, how did we get here? That's why in First and Second Kings, you have a record of David's sin with Bathsheba, but you don't have that in the book of Chronicles. It's also, also why he spends a lot of time in First and Second Kings talking about Solomon and his wives leading them into idolatry and never mentions it in Chronicles. You say, well, why is that the case? Because First and Second Kings was written to a people that had just gone into exile, and they were wondering why they had arrived there, and he wanted to let them know, it's because of your sin. The people who are returning from exile already know that. They already know the answer to the question, why do we end up in exile? The question they have is, can we restore what we used to have? 
And that's the question that's on everyone's mind today. We all want to know the same thing. What's it going to be like? What's it going to be like three months from now? What's it going to be like six months from now? What's it going to be like a year from now? Can we restore what we used to have? And so the book of 2 Chronicles is super, super relevant to us. God is teaching them, and he's also teaching us through the example of their ancient kings, the kings of their past, that actually returning is more than rebuilding. It's more than restoring what you used to have. It's about coming back to the Lord himself. And as we look forward to returning, it can't just be about coming back to what we used to be and had. It has to be about a return to the Lord. And so this morning, we're going to look briefly at, 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 at Solomon and some of the words that he declares and also hears from the Lord himself. And we're looking at this famous passage of Scripture, 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verses 11 through 14. We start with Solomon, the son of the king of David, the last king that ruled over an undivided kingdom, we come to these familiar verses. Look at what it says. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord in the king's house. All that Solomon had planned to do in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he successfully accomplished. Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. He's just built his palace. He's just finished building the temple. He's just dedicated the temple to the Lord in prayer. And in these words, the words from God himself to Solomon, we are reminded that the road that we have to take back to the Lord runs right through our hearts. And the place that we have to start with is a renewed desire. In verse 12, he says, Then the Lord appeared to Solomon in the night and said to him, I have heard your prayer, and I have chosen this place for myself as a house of sacrifice. And right after he dedicates the temple, this long prayer in chapter 6, God is responding to Solomon. He's speaking to his people. In verse 14, he'll say, My people who are called by my name. This is people who are in covenant relationship with the Lord, people who are part of God's family, the nation of Israel were chosen by God, selected by God, and so is the case in the New Covenant, in the New Testament, where we're reminded again that by grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, we become part of God's family. We have been chosen by God. He is our Father, and we are His children, and so He is talking about, He's talking to His people, His people, and He says to His people, the temple is important. I have chosen this place, he says, for myself as, as a house of sacrifice. So they're going back. When they, remember, these people, they're on their way back to Jerusalem. They're returning back to Jerusalem after the exile. And, 
And through the, words, through the words here of Solomon, God himself in the life of Solomon, they're being reminded of the importance of the temple. And so you say, well, why is the temple so important? Well, keep your finger here in chapter 7. Just turn a couple pages over back to chapter 5. Look at chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Here the ark is being brought. Solomon is bringing the ark, uh, the ark of the covenant back into the temple. It's a real special event that's happening. There's symbols there, there's harps, there's lyres, right? There's 120 priests who are trumpeters. It says in verse 13, it was the duty of the trumpeters and singers to make themselves heard in unison and praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments and praise to the Lord, they, they, this is what they said, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. They're singing it in unison. And it says, Then the house, the house of the Lord was filled with the cloud, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. That sounds pretty special to me. Right? The glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Jump over to chapter 7. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. Right after his prayer of dedication, as soon as Solomon says, Amen. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, it says, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifice, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests couldn't enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. And when all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement, and they worshiped, and they gave thanks to the Lord, saying, He is good, His steadfast love endures forever. What made the temple so awesome and so special is the presence of God. The presence of God was dwelling with His people. So they're not just returning. They shouldn't just be returning back to Jerusalem to regather or to reestablish themselves or to rebuild their houses, to get on with life. No, they were supposed to be coming back to, to restore the temple. Why? Because they needed to be longing for the presence of God. And this so should remind us of Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Of Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Literally tabernacled us. The tabernacle was like the first idea of God's presence, and then the temple was established. And, right? He dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Read it. Just folk, what is, what's going on here? What is John saying? What is God saying about his Son? He's saying the Word became flesh and, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In John chapter 2, verse 19, just the next chapter, in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus himself talks about the temple, and he, and he says this, if you destroy this temple, speaking about his own body, he says, in three days I will raise it up. 
And then, two chapters later, in John chapter 4, Jesus is having this conversation with a Samaritan woman at the well, and they're talking about worship. And in chapter 4, verse 21, uh, Jesus says to her, you know, the time is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. She had just told him that, well, we worship God on this mountain, and you worship God in, in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, remarkably, Jesus says, there is a time coming, right, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship, this, worship the Father. Right? There's a time when you won't worship God in the temple. And then he goes on, he says this in verse 23 of John chapter 4. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Back here in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 12, God calls this house the house of sacrifice. Tell me, who is the sacrifice? Jesus is. The temple, the place where God dwells among human beings, which the Old Testament promised, is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And if you and I are going to return to the Lord, if we are truly going to return to the Lord and, we're, and, and a renewed desire for his presence in our lives, we are going to have to have a renewed passion for Jesus. Because Jesus is the, is the declaration of the glory of the Lord. He, it's through him that we get to experience the Lord. Returning is way more than being together. As much as I long to see every single seat in this place filled. Returning is way more than having everyone here together. It's so much more than filling the room. It's all about our passion and love for Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus meant when he spoke to the church at Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. They were commended John Stott summarizes it this way. He says, they were commended, they were energetic in their service, they were patient in their suffering, they were orthodox in their faith. I read that and I go, gold star for Ephesus. Right? Energetic in their service. Patient in the midst of suffering. Orthodox in their faith. Except... Jesus himself goes on to say this in Revelation chapter 2, 4. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. They had lost their affection for and intimacy with Jesus. They were energetic in their service. They were patient in their suffering. They were orthodox in their faith. Everything on the surface looked awesome and great, but it was not. There's such a danger, there's such a danger for us to do all of this, to do all of this, to be energetic in our service, to be patient in our suffering, to even have orthodox faith and miss the point altogether. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. And returning to the Lord is about a renewed desire for Jesus because there is no return back to the Lord without Jesus. 
So just take, just take your spiritual temperature for Jesus right now. I mean, how long has it been? Has, has it been since you actually thanked Him? A day? Two days? A week? A month? In our times with the Lord. How much time have we been crying out to Him with affection and intimacy and crying out to Him, Lord, I just, I love you. I have such a longing and desire for you, Jesus. How long, how long have we recounted for ourselves the humility of Jesus Christ that He he came to this earth and took in the form of a baby and then ultimately humbled himself to die on the cross for us, to actually take our place on the cross. He, when's, when's the last time? I know you know, I know so many of you know the gospel. I know so many of you know the good news of Jesus Christ. But when's the last time you actually, with full out affection and intimacy, just cried out to Jesus and said, thank you. I know what we need more than anything in our lives is a return back to the Lord, but there is no return back to God himself without running through in Jesus. And then there's this in verse 13. Not only do we need a renewed desire, but we need to expect correction. Look at what he says in verse 13. When I shut up the heavens and so that there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people. This is like the bad news verse in the, uh, in the passage, or at least that's how most of us look at it. God's promising here to discipline his children. The people of God, the ones who are called by his name, he's about to say that in verse four, four, uh, 14. Those who are in Christ, those of us who are in Christ, we should expect discipline. Of course, in the Bible, the word discipline means one of two things. It either means training or it means correction. And, of course, every good parent knows that you got to do both, right? You can't, you can't just train your kids. I mean, it'd be, wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't it be great, right, if you didn't have to deal with the sin nature of the child? And you could just, like, say, okay, this is what you got to do. Here's your list from 1 to 10. Just follow one, step one, step two, step three, step four, and then, you know, next day just repeat Everything would be great. But it doesn't always work that way. Of course, we're trying to instill and train godliness into the lives of our kids, but from time to time, we have to correct our children. We have to move them to a point of correction. Good parents know that. Now, when I grew up, I never really loved the correction piece, but I always expected it. I mean, every single time, every single time, that I knew that I did something against what my parents wanted me to do. I expected correction. It's like I won the lottery when it didn't happen. You know, like that's kind of, kind of what it felt like. But we should, we should grow. We should understand this, that God, God, God corrects us. He corrects us. Verse 13 is correction. Do you see it when he says, when I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or, or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people? God's talking about correction here. It's not training. He's talking about correction. He's punishing his children. 
The key word in this verse is when. Okay, underline it, circle it, whatever you need to do. The word there is when. It's like not maybe. This isn't like a maybe situation or it might happen. No, when I do this. There's an actual expectation that this is actually going to happen. Well, why? Why is that the case? Why is God correcting them? Well, there's three important words for us. Okay, write these three words down. Sin, love, holiness. This is why, this is why God is correcting. It's because of sin, it's because of his love, and it's because of his holiness. If you look at chapter 6, verse 36, this great dedication prayer that Solomon prays, at chapter 6, verse 36, he says this, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin... Right, that's like Romans 3.23, all of a sin falls short of the glory of God, and it's right there in the Old Testament, right? If they sin against you, and oh, by the way, there is no one who does not sin, and then you are angry with them and give them to an enemy so that they are carried away, captive to a land far or near, right? So here, here's Solomon praying these words. Solomon, way before the exile, is praying these words to God as a dedication to the temple, and he's saying, yeah, you know, uh, you know when, when they sin against you, and, and you know, there's no one that gets, obviously everybody does that, and you're angry with them, and give them to an enemy, so they're carried away captive to a land far near. In other words, when you correct them for their sin, 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 sin in our lives is an obstacle for us to be returning to the Lord continual, habitual, rebellious sin where we think, we believe, we do what we want versus what God has declared to be right in his word. It's like when you're in that situation in your life, it's like you're building a brick wall in the midst of the road to get, trying to get back to the Lord. There's this big brick wall that's being built. It's being built up and up and up and up and up. That's what sin does. It creates this amazing obstacle. And when God sees you building that kind of, of wall between you and him, what does he do? He comes to correct you because he wants that wall down. He wants that wall down. Why? Second word, because he loves you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he received. So why, why, is God, why does God want to bring correction into our lives? Because he sees us from time to time building these walls of sin. They're creating a massive obstacle between us and him. And he wants that wall down because he loves us. He wants to be in relationship with us. And then this one, the third word, this one, holiness. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That we may share his holiness. He does it because there's sin in our lives. He does it because he loves us. It's because he does it because he wants us to share in his holiness. God is passionate. He is passionate about our progressive growth and sanctification. He wants us to become more and more like Jesus Christ. Yes, the good news means that if you are, by, by God's grace through faith, you are now in Christ, you are declared to be righteous before the Lord, you are justified, but it doesn't end with justification. As amazing as justification is, God also wants to see you sanctified. He wants to see you 
grow, become more and more like Christ. He wants you to experience more and more of His holiness. And so that's why when sin, habitual sin is in our lives, God will send correction. So you say, well, how do I know if I'm being corrected? How do I know if that? How do I know if God's disciplining me? Are you sinning? Are you engaged in rebellion towards God? It's like you know, I'm I'm talking about a consistent kind of your your anti-God in the way that you're kind of doing things right now. You're proclaiming to be part of God's people, but you're not living the way that you're supposed to be living, and you know that that's the case. You should expect God's correction. Because He loves you. And He wants you. He's committed to having you share in His holiness. The Spirit of God will convict you of sin. That's what the Spirit of God does. One of the things the Spirit of God does, He convicts us of our sin. He uses the Word of God to bring conviction and correction. Maybe He's doing that even right now. But there are also times when God may actually use suffering and pain to actually bring correction in our life, like what he's talking about here in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 13. When I shut up the heavens so that there's no rain, or command a locust to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, and you're saying, oh, whoa, wait, whoa, wait a minute, really? Yeah, not all suffering and pain is because God's correcting our sins. We live in a fallen and broken world. Many of us know what it's like to experience suffering and pain because we live in a fallen and broken world. Not because of something personally that we've done, but just because we're part of this. I know what that's like. You know what that's like. But there are also times in Scripture where God actually uses suffering and pain specifically to do other things like in john chapter 9 when the disciples saw the blind man and they asked jesus the question well why is he blind is it because his parents sinned or because he sinned and jesus said in john 9 3 he says it was not that this man's 